Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. And I'm Tim Cronin. We're back with part two of how to prepare for a civil trial. Yeah. So just a reminder, we covered getting a pretrial conference scheduled early and then from that working backwards to figure out what motions eliminate you need to file by going through your evidence, deposition designations for any depots you need to play at trial. You want to tee all of that up to take it up at the pretrial. You don't want to be doing it during the trial. Reviewing and preparing your file and all the things that involves, preparing your jury instructions in advance so you know what you have to prove, and all that allows you to get to the place where you're ready to start organizing and preparing for the actual evidence you're going to put on. So one of the first things I do after I have this other stuff done is I make an order of proof. Eric, and it's just a little chart by day after I've reviewed the file, determine what I need to prove. That chart consists of identifying when and how I intend to present each piece of evidence to the jury. It creates a calendar that lists in order, like usually Monday's just voir dire, but I might put opening on it just in case. And then in order, the witnesses I intend to call, how much time I think I'm going to need with each one of them to figure out which witnesses to put on which days, discovery responses I intend to read and when, depositions I plan to present and when, which allows you to make sure you have those designations done so that your IT person can then clip the video together. You know, this reminds me of that saying attributed to Einstein, why memorize anything that you can write down? Right. And it's really an important point because you only have so much cognitive bandwidth. I mean, this is an exhausting enterprise trying a case. Why have stuff stirring around in your head about who am I going to call tomorrow or next or whatever? Oh, yeah. When you can actually plan it in a quiet moment, you command that list. You create the list and then the list runs you. Right. And it's like wonderful. It's like, what am I supposed to do next? Oh, there it is. Yeah. And I want to have given careful consideration of the order in which I want the jury to hear the evidence. And then I take that order of proof out every morning at trial and I put it right in the middle of my table. And as it happens, I put check marks next to it. So let me dig into your thought process about, you know, do you want high impact at the beginning? Do you want to save the big stuff for later? You don't want a dull opening, I'm sure. Right. And you don't want a dull closing. Right. And there's some stuff that just has to be done because it's setting the foundation for other things. So as a general rule, I try not to play a video depot right after opening. I want to have a live witness that I can put on some key piece of liability. A lot of times I like to start with my expert where I can just put the whole case on if they're a good testifying expert. You know, otherwise I might start with a defendant doctor or a corporate rep. I generally don't want to start with my client. I want to start with assuming the other side in their opening said that I couldn't prove X or something I said in the opening wasn't true. If I'm anticipating they're going to do that, I want the first witness to be someone that absolutely shows the jury what I said was true and what they said wasn't. So I want something engaging that like excites the jury right away. Where do you put your point of? That depends on the case. Sometimes I want to bury them in the middle of my case if there's problems or try to put them on at the end of a day and put them on fairly quickly, leaving the other side with enough time that the jury and judge thinks you should finish with this witness so they don't have to come back. Other times, if they're a star, I may put them on last in my case. I want the jury waiting and waiting the whole time during my case. When are we going to hear from him or her? And if they're really dynamite, 
let them hear from them last, right before the defendant has to start putting on their case. What do you think of the adage that jurors often come to their decision based upon their anger at the defendant rather than trying to help the plaintiff? I think it's both. I mean, I think anger at the defendant plays a big part in whether you're going to win on liability. And it plays a big part on the size of it. But if a jury's angry at a defendant, but they really don't like your plaintiff, they got to want to help them. They got to think they're a good person. And if not, I think you've got a tough hill to sled, even if they're angry at the defendant. Some people say you got to be careful not to have the jury acclimate entirely to the horrible injury by having the plaintiff on too long, too early, Yeah, where they just get used to it. It might be a, a terrible, disfiguring injury that when your plaintiff testifies, they kind of forget about not it as being bad as I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I tend not to have my client on the stand for terribly long, Eric. I do meticulous, like kind of insane outlines for every witness, but not my client. I do that for my client, and then I pare it down to like six bullet points, and I get up usually without a piece of paper. And I just get away from the podium and I just talk to them like a person and stand by the jury. So they're talking to the jury. I don't want my client to be responsible for having to like prove an element of the case. I want them to just be likable and let them meet them, hopefully like them. And like you said, the longer they're up there being able to talk, they may think less and less about the severity of their injury. So, you know, order of proof, voir dire, opening, discovery responses, witnesses in the order you want to call them live or play the depots. And then for the defendants, I make sure to put on that admission of exhibits at the end so that I don't forget to do that like we talked about. And then who I anticipate is going to be in the defendant's case, experts, defendant themselves, etc. So... Once I have that, the order of proof, and as you're doing that, you're figuring out which witnesses you may have deposed if you need to call them or not call them. That allows me to know what subpoenas I need to get out to those that are not under our control, like our clients or our experts. If I intend to call any employees or corporate reps of the other party to the extent they're in a jurisdiction where I have subpoena power over them, I check with opposing counsel, they'll likely accept service of those subpoenas rather than, you know, they don't want their client or whoever to get served with a subpoena by a sheriff. Get the subpoenas out early and plan for the unexpected. It's much better to have an extra witness under subpoena rather than scrambling to track someone down at the last minute. So I try to do that a number of weeks before trial. In most cases, we have experts, sometimes many of them. There's no worse feeling than if you absolutely, like in a med mal case, you have to have your expert to make your case, forgetting to make sure they had that week blocked off for your trial. This is something you need to do like as soon as you get your trial setting and remind them six months before the trial. I call them and go, reminder, this is the trial. We're probably going to call you on Tuesday or Wednesday. Please keep both of those days open and we want you in Monday night to prep you. You got to make sure any expert you retained is available. Make their travel and lodging arrangements for them unless they prefer to do it themselves. Plan for your expert to arrive the day before. They'll testify so that you can go over their testimony with them the night before and make sure they've reviewed everything and anything you might be expecting to come up with them that they should be ready for. I spend hours and hours with them. And I'll usually have a phone call with them the week before too to kind of line up and make sure, okay, well, please go through the file again. Here's some major issues. Make sure you read this depot I just took. So talk to them, give them an outline of what they need to review and prepare for so that you can sit down with them and really go through their testimony the night before. Let's assume you had a good deposition of an opponent's expert and you decide you want to start your trial off differently where you call as your first witness 
their expert. Yeah. How much control do you have to make sure that that person shows up at that time? If they're in the state, I think you have total control over it. If you subpoena them for that day, I mean, if they try to say they're not available, they'll have to try to file a motion to quash and have to convince the court, you know, depending on if it's like a neurosurgeon who has a surgery scheduled for that morning, you know, the judge is probably going to say, you're not calling them that day. You might have to call them the next day. But a lot of times we record opposing experts depots. So if nothing else, I almost always designate the best admissions I got from the opposing expert and put it on my order of proof and have it ready to go. You know, sometimes I'll play it right before my expert goes on the stand so that they hear the opposing expert admitted five of the main things that my expert is saying, just as a backup in case you can't call them live in your case. There is a magic to a well-edited video of an opponent expert or a oh, yeah. corporate rep. It reminds me, you ever seen those videos on uh, YouTube where some kid is making trick shots in basketball from halfway out of the court or in, from the stands, and it's like one after another, nailing every shot they take. Well, obviously they took eight weeks to shoot this thing. They <laughs> right. edited it down to just the, you know, the 30 that went in and he looks like a genius. Yeah. And there's something about the video that just gives this impression that when you put 10 worst moments for your opponent's expert all together, yeah. and it's nothing but bad, bad, bad for the, your other side. It really is high impact. Very high impact. Be prepared to have the fight and don't give in. The other side, if you have something like that, like two minutes of gold, they're going to want to try to drown it out by designating anything and everything in the depot. I think that's nonsense. I usually say, judge, if they want to do that, first of all, you know, I have the burden of proof and I'm putting on my evidence. They can't just put their whole case on in my case because I want to play a piece of it. They can designate something to put that admission in context. If they think it's not in context, that's fine. If they want to designate everything from their expert, that expert should not be allowed to come anymore in their case and testify again. And that usually calms them like, okay, we'll just designate a little to put stuff in context. Have you ever had it where they want to read all of it together as opposed to you get to read your designations and then immediately following, but it's during your case, they get to read the rest of the deposition designations that they choose? It's usually if the court is going to allow them to play any of their designations in my case rather than in their case, it just goes in the order that it happened in the depot usually. I have had it happen the other way. It seemed like clunky. Mm -hmm. It seemed like it didn't make much sense. But I really fight like heck to not let them designate much, if anything, especially if they're going to call them in their case. Right. So, you know, once you have made arrangements to make sure your experts available, going to be here, make travel arrangements, prep them for when they're going to go on, you need to start putting your mind towards preparing your client. We've done episodes about this and with like the active communication people about help in doing that. Your most important witness will probably be your client. And like I just said, I don't want my client to be responsible for proving any elements of the case, but that doesn't mean your client's not still the most important witness. They should be presentable, likable, prepared. Preparing your client should be done in stages. You shouldn't just, as an afterthought, talk to them for an hour the night before they're going to go on. They'll be nervous. You need to do it in stages with perhaps three or more meetings taking place before trial. They're going to be nervous. Invite them to your office several weeks early to explain what to expect, where to be, when to be there. It might be touchy, but discuss appearance with your client. You know, Some clients, you don't have to do that. 
Others you do. But even with clients where you don't think you have to do that, I make it a point to say, please do not wear any $30,000 jewelry while you're going to be in front of the jury. I know you're going to look nice, but I don't want a giant diamond earrings or things like that. Let them know how to dress, how to behave throughout the trial. Even when they're not on the stand, somebody on that jury is going to be looking at them at every second, save their emotions and any questions they have for outside the presence of the jury. And then at subsequent meetings, and again, during the weekend, immediately prior to trial and the night before they testify, meet with them to discuss their testimony. The more you practice, the more comfortable they'll be. I try to hit key points of like, look, here's the really main things you need to remember Here's the main things you need to avoid or be prepared to address on cross. I try not to hit him with too much. What do you tell your client as far as what to be doing, if anything, when they're not on the stand, but they're in the courtroom? First of all, I don't keep them at the table with me. I have them sit in the back with my paralegal to avoid the focus as much as I can on looking at them. And I just tell them that they need to, you know, I have Kelly sitting right next to them to make sure if they don't think they're doing this, she can remind them. You just need to stay kind of stone-faced. You don't even want to look mean, even if you're not saying something when the other lawyer is saying something or when the defendant is on the stand or something. You need to just stay stone-faced. Understand I'm going to make the points you want me to make and we can answer your questions on a break. But at all times, assume 12 people's eyes are locked on you looking at your reaction. And if you have one bad one, you might have sunk your case. So if the jury doesn't like your client from the plaintiff's side or the defense side, that alone might mean you're finished. So make sure you give adequate time in stages to prep them. Other than that, just kind of some odds and ends. After reviewing the file, creating your order of proof, prepping for your witnesses, you might discover that there's a few issues that leave you puzzled. There may be evidence you're not sure if you want to present, evidence that's bad for you that you can't figure out how to negate evidence you simply have no idea how a jury will react to, this is where a focus group may be helpful. And we've talked about focus groups in the past. I think they can be tremendously, tremendously, tremendously helpful. I don't think of them as being predictive of a result, but helping me figure out a way the jury might be thinking, you know, we're so into our case and we think this is what's important and this is what's important. And something that common sense, someone hearing it may be thinking, well, I think they might have done this, even though there's no evidence of it. And if somebody might be thinking about that, I want to know that in a focus group so I can address it. Yeah, I don't want to keep harping on this, but the concept of the confirmation bias, it inflicts us all. And it's a human trait that is built in. We're pre-wired to ignore the things that don't further our own theory at the moment. Yeah. We are blind to that. And the longer and harder you try to think about your case, the things that come easily to your mind are your favorite things. And truly, you're blind to those other things. And that's the beauty of the focus group. They don't care coming in. They're just, okay, what's this about? And they can form their initial impressions, which your last chance to do that was probably 10 seconds after you met your client. Yeah. And now you can't see that stuff. And I agree. The focus groups are a great way to have, like, how stupid of me to have not thought of that. Yeah. And it's yeah, obvious for someone you know, who's not involved in the case. A railroad crossing case, your client gets hit by a train. You know there's no evidence that your client was drinking. You know your client wasn't drinking. The other side isn't suggesting it. But people in the focus group are like, I bet he was drinking. Mm -hmm. I bet he was drinking. And so I'm like, where did you get that from? The jury instructions say you can't consider. It's not how people think. And so I'll go on. Now, I, well, 
I better hammer it in opening. Even the defendant is not going to suggest to you because there's no evidence that he was drinking and just hammer it and it can help go, okay, all right, we understood. They looked into it and he wasn't. So it's just of so much value. Leave time, do a focus group for the participants to sit around, discuss the issues you're concerned about. Or if you do an online one, plenty of space for them to just give thoughts of, you know, anything else you wanted to hear about or wanted to know and take time to read them so that you can figure out if you need to do some different things at trial. Let's go back to your uh, questioning of the witnesses. You do have outlines or, or notes of some sort. I find that, yes, I will occasionally write a question where it's a really important question. I phrase it exactly right. I'll write that one out. Oh, yeah. But I find that if I write out every question, it's stilted. It's just not natural. And so what I do, I tend to write out the answer that I'm looking for, not the question. You know, things that I think are important for the witness to discuss. And if they don't say it right the first time, I keep at it until I see that magic phrase come out. Yeah. What about you? How often do you write out an actual question as opposed to doing something else? So, you know, I've talked about with my client, I try to boil it down and just having some bullet points and just have a natural discussion with them. With most of the other witnesses, I have like a script, but I don't then just read the script. I mean, I have it for a comfort level with every point I want to make the exhibit number right next to it. But there are some where I put a big star next to it, where it's like, I wanted to phrase it exactly that way. Because I know if they admit it that way, and then five minutes later, admit another thing that way, I've got them trapped from something they said in their depot and they're in a box. So I have almost all the questions like written out, but then I'm much looser once I'm, you know, I look at it and like, okay, the point I have to make is this. So I tend to over-prepare on my outlines, but then once I'm comfortable, not be beholden to it. Mm -hmm. On certain cases, it may be a good idea to prepare a trial brief. I don't usually do this, Eric. I don't know if you do. I tend to, in the motions in limine pleading, set out a factual background there rather than doing a trial brief. But in some cases, if you have a judge that hasn't had much civil experience or has told you, you know, I haven't tried a med mal case before or a product case, whatever, sometimes I will do a trial brief that just then for them lays out the elements of the case according to the jury instruction you've already put together. And then a little bit of, for each claim, the best evidence to support it, just so the judge has an idea of, okay, now I know what they need to prove. And here they're telling me this is what they're going to prove to meet those elements. But I usually don't do it unless the court asks me to. Yeah, I think that's the proper test of whether it will be useful for a court. And you've lived with this case. You've lived with many cases similar to this firm is well reputed as handling large catastrophic injury death cases involving torts. And so it may be hard for you to imagine somebody sitting on the bench who's only done domestic cases or something else that never handled this kind of case. And it may be overwhelming. It's hard to even imagine what they're thinking about the case since they haven't tried these kinds of cases before. And yeah, it makes total sense to give them what you think they might need to get comfortable with this case. I mean, a lot of judges rightfully spent their careers as civil servants, as prosecutors or as public defenders. And they come onto the bench and they're tasked with not just doing criminal cases, but civil cases. And they'll ask you like, you know, this is my first civil trial. I'm going to need you guys to help me out. And then I'll go, we'll put together a trial brief that lays out the elements and cites to the jury instructions and all that stuff. Now, for those seriously dedicated to preparation, here's something that John Simon does. He creates an issues digest. Have you seen one of his issues digests before, Eric? I believe I have, but remind me what he puts in those. I mean, oftentimes they may end up being 200 pages. 
He lists out each major issue in the case, organized based on the elements that he needs to prove. Then he goes through all of the evidence in the case, including each deposition, each document, each photo, each allegation, each discovery response, and every piece of evidence that helps to prove any element is then listed out and cited to with page and line in that section. Cites to the precise location where the evidence can be found. This is incredibly time consuming, but after it's done, you will know your case backwards and forwards. You should be prepared for anything that comes your way at trial. If a witness, an expert ends up being allowed to get into some area you didn't anticipate so that you didn't really have your cross prepared for them and they get into something like causation and you didn't think they were going to be talking about it, you got your issues digest with every single thing you know that's good for you about causation and you can pull that out and do it on the fly. So that's something that John does. You know, your opponent suggests to the judge that no evidence exists to support a certain proposition in the middle of your trial. Go to your issues digest, list out all the evidence proving them wrong to the point where the court and the opposing counsel go, all right, never mind. I got it. So we're always met with motions for directed verdict. You've already got everything listed out and hopefully everything important in there. You then ended up presenting at trial. So you've already got everything organized to respond to the motion for directed verdict, where usually it gets to the point where the court goes, okay, okay, we get it. Motion for directed verdict denied. You don't have to keep going on like, well, I just want to make sure the court is aware of all the evidence we put on. When you're preparing for trial and you're, you know, getting ready to go in there, it may be the last thing you want to think about is negotiating still. Yeah. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether you discourage or prohibit whatever talk about negotiation when you reach a certain point. I mean, I never really, I never cut it off because every client, if you can secure enough money that they'd rather not risk the trial, we have an obligation to do that for them. And on the defense side, if you can secure a settlement that eliminates the risk of a verdict larger than that on the defense side, they have an obligation to do that and they want to do it. I try not to be distracted. I'm not approaching the other side about a settlement unless I really think I'm definitely not going to win the case. I wait for them to come to me. And if they do, and it's before we're about to start and I need to focus on what we're going to do, I tell them this is going to have to wait till lunch break or the end of the day. I try not to let it distract me while I'm in the middle of like I'm about to put on an important witness. It is distracting. Yeah. It somehow, I find, takes you out of your mode of arguing your case and presenting evidence. It somehow does that. And it's just something that occupies part of your brain that you really don't want to have there at that I point. I cannot stand still being engaged in negotiations either with a mediator calling back and forth or phone calls with opposing counsel the weekend before trial. I feel like it's sapping my motivation. Every time I do it, I'm thinking, maybe this trial isn't going to go. Do I really need to be here all weekend doing this when the case might settle? And it's like, I don't want to think like that. I want to think this trial is definitely going and I need to spend every waking moment working on it. So it's very, very distracting, but sometimes you got to do it because how often is it the case where all of a sudden a light bulb seems to go off for everybody about what the reasonable value of the case is the day before you're going to start it? It's a distraction, but one that oftentimes we can't avoid, right? So, you know, nothing we've said here is earth shattering, but for someone who's going to trial for the first time, the idea or task of preparing can be overwhelming. Getting started is often the hardest part. You can feel paralyzed, like I don't, there's so much to do, I don't know how to do it. So this is really just a checklist to keep you organized, give you a game plan, make sure you don't miss any important steps. So you can then spend time focusing on your case. 
strive to complete this checklist, which I'm going to read off again at least a week before trial. Leave yourself time to sit and think about the issues, about how your opponent will present the case, what arguments will be made figuring out how to combat those arguments, take them away entirely or try to embrace them and make them a part of your case. Spend time thinking about what kinds of jurors you want. If you get all these other nuts and bolts done, you have time in the week before trial to just sit and think, you know, and there's nothing more important that you need time where you're not just scrambling, where you can sit and think. So just a reminder, the checklist, schedule a pretrial conference, Give mine to and draft your motions in limine, depot designations, review and organize your file, supplement discovery, get your exhibit list together, do an order of proof, issue subpoenas for witnesses, prepare experts and make travel arrangements, meet with and prepare clients, do your jury instructions, and then start working on your prep of the actual witnesses of your client, of your expert, putting together your outlines and things like that. You know, there's a good bunch of research on the effect of stress. And one thing it does, it narrows your focus. It makes you think more specifically and it kind of destroys creativity. Yeah. And so when you prepare in all these ways, it does open you up. Like you're saying, that moment of quiet maybe you have because you prepared all this stuff ahead mm -hmm. of time. Now you can start thinking about those other things that maybe didn't occur to you yet. Yeah. It might be the best part of your case. Sometimes these best ideas come just out of the blue when you're thinking. Like, why didn't I think of that earlier? But you thought about it now and you thought about it because you did all this work and got all the stress out of the case. Now it's just a matter of going to execute. And now this thought came in and it might be your favorite part of the case. And I still, to this day, that checklist I just read off, the big whiteboard in my office, I write every single one of those things down on that whiteboard a month before I'm going to try a case. And then I check them off as they get done. Just peace of mind that I know I'm not missing just the most basic stuff. So hopefully this was helpful, especially for younger lawyers who haven't had a chance to try many cases yet. We thank you for joining us. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm Eric Beeth. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At The Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, feel free to share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.